Our sermon this morning is taken from our scripture reading, which is drawn this morning from another psalm, specifically Psalm 48. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. And when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Selah. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The psalmist takes us beyond the pilgrimage to the city. But before he brings us to the city, he brings us to God. And he tells us God is the true God, the one actual God, is great. He is greatly to be praised because he is great. And the psalm defines greatness in a rather tangible way. Many would say of their gods, God is great. I mean, who hasn't heard the phrase Alu Akbar? But the psalmist talking about the one true God dies great in verse 10 through 11. So is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. The word judgment means something that God has uh, considered and has done something about. God's judgments are not just his mental estate, but they are God's actions in the world. And the psalmist says, O oh Lord, your hand is full of justice. What does that symbolize but God doing things? You act with your hand. You bring about action with your hand. And the psalmist says, God is at work in the world. In fact, he says, as is your name, so is your praise. 
because quite frankly, you are at work everywhere in the world. Those who have eyes to see the action of God can see God doing his thing, bringing about justice and righteousness in many ways, in many places, everywhere. God is not a God who is so separate from his creation that he cannot be known. He is not a God who is not active like the, the deist's idea of deity. He is actively engaged in the world. Now, if you are an angry atheist, if you are mad at God, you will at this very moment bring up in this sermon, yeah, but what about all those terrible things that happen on earth? Well, the psalmist doesn't say they don't. But the psalmist says if you have eyes to see, you can see God at work everywhere. He is to be praised everywhere because he is at work everywhere. The entire earth belongs to him. He is the creator of it. And if you have eyes to see it, you can't miss it. You can see who he is, what his nature is, because of the goodness he does everywhere in the world. That is why God is great. And he is to be praised in every place. But paradoxically, the very fact that he is worthy of praise in every place at every moment uh, means that he is so worthy of praise that he is worthy of praise in a special place, in a set-apart place, in a holy place unique on the earth. And the majority of our psalm is about that. Great is God and greatly to be praised. Where is he greatly to be praised? Well, in all the earth, at verse 10 and 11, but in verse 1 and 2, he is to be praised specifically in Zion, the city of our God. He is so great. He is worthy of praise. Let us gather in this particular place, surrounded by a certain wall with certain buildings. Let us praise our great working God in Zion, the city of our God. It is the city of the great king. That phrase would have been familiar to ancients. There were many cities throughout the world that were dedicated, quote, to the great king, end quote. But the great king was the great human king. It was the city of the great king Pharaoh, or the city of the great king who rules over Babylon. The psalmist assaults that notion when in the psalm he says, this is the city of the great king, and then the next line he uses is, God is known in her palaces. The city of the great king is the city of God. It is not the city of David, although it is called that sometimes. In this psalm, it is the city of the great king. The great king is the eternal king. God rules over all. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is the city of the greatest king, God himself. That would have been considered um, very dangerous to the kings of the earth at the time of the writing of this psalm. And indeed, it is considered dangerous. And we meet the kings of the earth a few verses later. And they are not in a very friendly frame of mind. 
The psalmist says Jerusalem is where God should be praised. It is the city of the great king. And then he begins to go into uh, why is he so joyous about Jerusalem? Well, he says it is great and beautiful in its elevation. Well, the mountains that Jerusalem occupies are actually kind of small. Compared to the mountains of the earth, uh, they're nothing to brag about. But the psalmist says, look how elevated the mountains are. He says it is a beautiful sight. It is the joy of the whole earth. Again, the kings we read about and we shall hear of in our sermon would be surprised to hear that. When they arrive in our psalm, they don't arrive filled with joy. They arrive with weapons. They arrive to lay siege to Jerusalem. But the psalmist looks about the city and says, look how, how beautiful it is in elevation. It is the joy of the whole earth. Anyone on all the earth, if they are going to find joy, they will find it here. They may not know that, but that's the truth. In Haggai the prophet, Haggai talks of our Lord Christ and says he is the desire of all the nations. And again, the nations would hear Haggai say that and say, I don't remember that being my desire. The atheist Chinese are not right now consciously thinking, we desire Jesus Christ. The great empires on earth did not really desire Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, they would give lip service to the opposite. But what Haggai is saying is, though they don't know it, every desire of every human heart, every real desire, they may think they have desires for various things, but the real desire of the human heart, Jesus Christ meets it. You have, a, you have a hole in your heart, you have a, a, a gaping void that you may try to fill with many things and say, okay, that's my desire. It won't be filled, but by our Lord Jesus Christ. And Haggai says he's the desire of all the earth. Well, the psalmist says the city of Zion is the joy of all the earth, and the earth says, no, nah, we don't think so. But the psalmist is right. If you're going to find actual joy on earth, you won't find it in anything else but what is in the city of Zion. What is done here, what happens here, who is here, that is what causes your joy. But not the whole city, says the psalmist. There is an awkward uh, line for translation work in the verse that says on the sides or the slopes of the north in the city of Zion. The city of Zion is bigger or smaller depending upon history. But if you look to the northwest corner of the city, you will always see a very significant uh, figure there. You will see the holy temple the temple of Solomon, and later the temple of Zerubbabel, the temple of God. The psalmist says the reason why Zion is the joy of all the earth is because what happens on the north side, on the slope up there, 
on, quote, Mount Zion proper, which is not very high physically, but it has been elevated beyond all the mountains of the earth. It is higher than all of them. It is more beautiful than all of them because on that spot, God has covenantally placed where he will meet with his people. It's comprised of the holy place, the most holy place, the outer court. God has decreed in this building and in this priesthood that he will be at least partially reconciled to men. We have lost our ability to walk with God in the cool of the day. We have been thrown out of Eden. By the end of the fourth chapter of Genesis, God doesn't walk with us at all, but we call upon his name. But God did something amazing in the Old Testament. He agreed to be among his people again in a certain way in the form of the Shekinah glory, which was in the temple. Uh, You could come into God's presence. You could have fellowship with God to a certain level. We have been studying about that in the Lexian Bible study for about a year now. Uh, God would be reconciled to man in the temple through the system of sacrifices and offerings and prayers. You could actually have fellowship with God again, which you don't have outside of Zion. God said, here in the city, this will be where my temple is. You can have fellowship with me, your creator. That is why the city is the joy of all the earth. It is because what man is deeply longing for, though he can't give words to it, the reason why he lacks joy, the reason why he is constantly in despair and anger and suffering and what have you, is he is not in fellowship with God, but there on the slopes of the north, there in the city of Zion, the city of the great king, there is God's means of fellowship again. And he is to be praised in the city. He is to be worshipped in the city. You're to praise him everywhere, but uniquely here because there in the temple, there on the sides of the north, there where we contemplate God's loving kindness, as the psalmist says, God can be met with. That is why it is the city of the great king, because that's where God holds his court. And holding his court there in the temple, he is also known in the various palaces and buildings of the city. God makes his presence known in Zion. He is a real refuge, which the psalmist has seen with his own eyes. The psalmist says uh, what we have heard about, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God has promised to be a refuge to his people. We've heard that in his word, but boy, did we experience it. And we experienced it in verse 4 through 7. The world's very first study Bible, the Geneva Bible, has this as its opening note to Psalm 48. A notable deliverance of Jerusalem from the hands of many kings is mentioned, for the which thanks are given to God, and the state of that city is praised, that hath God so presently and at all times ready to defend them. 
This psalm seemeth to be made in the time of Ahaz, or Jehoshaphat, or Asa, or Hezekiah. For in their times chiefly was the city by foreign princes assaulted. Those writing the study notes have to say, we're not quite sure when the psalmist wrote this psalm. There's so many times it could have been. In all of those kings, the foreign kings banded together and said, we are going to take down Zion. We hate it. It's the joy of all the earth, but we don't think so. And we're going to burn it to the ground. So it could be in Jehoshaphat's time or Asa's or, or any of those kings. We don't know because it all happened the same way. The kings of the earth hated the fact that God was among men, hated the fact that God had a chosen people. They all banded together and said, for a while, let's put together all the hostilities we have against each other, which are a lot, and let's go get them because we hate them. We're going to destroy them. And so uh, the psalmist has lived through one of those eras. Um, pick your era. And he says, this is what we saw when the kings of the earth came to attack the city of the great king. Well, behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. Passing by is a reference to having surrounded Jerusalem, the city of the holy king, with their armies. They walked in grand procession around the walls together, claiming this will be our city. They passed by together, but in the next verse, they saw it, and so they marveled, which is not what conquerors usually do. Conquerors usually show up with pride and arrogance. They don't marvel at their enemies. They hold them in contempt, but things are slightly changing in our psalm. The, the, the battle lines have been drawn. The kings of the earth have surrounded God's city, but now they're marveling. They were troubled, is the next line. They hastened away. The living Bible version of that would be they tucked their tails and ran. Because of what was happening in the city, fear took hold of them there as pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So the kings and all their pomp and circumstance came out to attack the visible assembly of God. They had mighty power. All the odds were to bet on them. But just like when a storm blows up at sea and wipes out the greatest ship, God rose up and destroyed them all. It happened in each and every time I mentioned. My favorite one is when the Assyrians surround Jerusalem and declare that no God has ever opposed them, and then they go to sleep at night and God sends among them an angel of death, and when they wake up, two-thirds of their men are dead. God opposes them. The psalmist says, we have seen God keep his promise. God is, is lovingly kind to his people. He is in, in, in covenant with his people. And that means he will protect them. And it also means that he is doing something concerning this city in particular. In verse 8, the ending of it is significant. As we have heard, so we have seen, 
in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. And then we have that word Selah, which is used in the Psalms for, okay, I've said something really significant, and you need to pause and think about what's been said. It's the only place it shows up in our psalm. It comes right after, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. It was God who granted to his people a way to be in fellowship with him. Uh, God is not of a mind to let that go. Let the kings of the earth raise up their power and say, we're going to burn it to the ground. God will establish Zion forever. God will see to it that the fellowship he has with his people will not be broken. Let them bring their great armies. God will defend Zion. And that seems to be the great point of the psalm. God is going to establish Zion forever. He is going to make sure at some point that the city of God is permanent and perpetual. And there can be a special place where God's people can meet with him, even though they are to praise him all throughout the world. There will be this special place forever that they will come and be able to praise him in a way that is uniquely filled with the presence of God. That brings up some slight difficulty. If you know your biblical history, you know that there comes a point when Zion is destroyed. The Babylonians sweep into the city and burn it to the ground. They destroy the city of God. For 70 years, there is no ministry at the temple, for there is no temple. The psalm celebrates God has delivered Zion. He will establish it forever, but how do you reconcile the fact that for 70 years, nothing happened there? The lamentations begin with how desolate is the city that once was filled with people, how lonely she is who once was queen among the nations. Various psalms gnash their teeth. Oh, Lord, the, the nations have come into your temple and destroyed it, and we are left without a meeting place. But that was only one time Zion was destroyed. In AD 70, it would be destroyed again. The temple destroyed miraculously uh, the, they'd be scattered into the nations and they would never and over the course of 2000 years uh, they would lose their bloodlines they wouldn't be able to say okay I'm from Issachar or I'm from Zebulun or I'm from Levi the tribe given to lead the worship in the temple, it is given to them alone. Only Levites can minister there. Only the descendants of Aaron the priest can be the priests there. The temple has laid waste for 2,000 years in Jerusalem, and now there is no way for a priesthood to minister there, even if they wanted to. Let the city be rebuilt. Let the temple be rebuilt on any pattern that you draw from Scripture. 
there's not a Levite or a son of Aaron to hold these rituals. And yet the psalm says, God will establish Zion forever. What are we to make of that? Well, if we are to make of that, that the promise concerns the physical city and its walls, its physical walls, its, its physical buildings, the promise has failed. God has failed to keep his word, and you can close your Bible and be done with religion because God is not worthy. But the city never was quite what the city was supposed to symbolize. Our psalmist rejoices in the city, and he, he tells you to go around the city and look at the walls, the ramparts, the palaces, this is the city of God. You can know what God is like by seeing these things because God is everywhere. And the psalmist isn't wrong in this, but paradoxically, uh, this is the words of the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. It's talking about the city of Zion, the physical city of Zion, the city that our psalmist has called the city of the great king. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Now, I would point out to you, by the way, the psalmist is condemning the city of Jerusalem for not trusting in the Lord her God. This is the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament prophet. Anyone who tells you that trust in the Lord, faith in God, was not rock central to relating to God in the Old Testament, gets crushed by this verse and about 4,000 others that say the exact same thing. The prophet Zephaniah says, Jerusalem did not trust in the Lord. She was a oppressing city. She didn't draw near to her God. Instead, the very things in the city that our psalm praises, this is what Zephaniah says are like. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Is this the joy of all the earth? Is this where you see God? Well, the answer is yes, according to Zephaniah. The passage ends with this. The Lord is righteous in her midst. So God is in Jerusalem. He is there. The Shekinah glory burns. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust know no shame. So the prophet Zephaniah says, yes, this is the city of God and he is here. And you can see him if you have eyes to see him in the city. It shows him. But let's be real here. The princes of Zion, the kings, they are corrupt men. The priests, the prophets of Zion, they are corrupt men. They are unsafe men. The entire city is swarming with sin and lack of faith. Is this the Zion that God will establish forever? 
this city of sticks and bricks, this physical temple, is this what God will establish forever? The words of our Lord Christ seem to be significant here. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 23, our Lord is standing overlooking the city, the city of Zion. And as he overlooks the city, in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 37 to 39, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our Lord talking about the city of the great king. He is looking over it. He is the great king. He is whom the city is supposed to be about. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, you wicked city. I have longed to gather your children together, but you won't do it. You are wicked, rebellious people. The result of that is the city will be left desolate, but there will be some who will see me. They will be the ones who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And our Lord's prophecy comes to pass. The city is destroyed. The priesthood is eradicated. There is no way for that physical temple to be used to uh, be reconciled to God in any way now. But still the promise of a holy Jerusalem, a place where God is specifically known and specifically worshipped, remains in Scripture. And we see it in the New Testament. The writer to Hebrews talks about the Christian and his relation to God. And he says of us, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, talking about Mount Sinai, but talking about a physical mountain, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Here's the important part. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. You Christian, you have come there already. Now, Hebrews was written not to people living in Jerusalem. It was written to Christians scattered throughout the world, and he says to you, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come. You have taken the pilgrimage. God has welcomed you into the city where he will be reconciled to you. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is distinct from the earthly. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and that's plural. It's not a reference to Jesus. A reference is going to come to him later. You are the firstborn of his creation. You are reborn. Uh, 
to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And finally, as this phrase comes to an end, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So Jesus says that city that the psalmist praised, but the prophet said was wicked, that city isn't the Zion that's eternal. The Christian comes to an eternal Zion when he comes to Christ. Jesus said over the city, I would gather you in, but you were not willing. Demonstrating what God is doing in the world, God's action is to gather in. He gathers a people together, and they gather in the heavenly Jerusalem. They gather at Mount Zion because they themselves are the city. Listen to the words of the Revelation. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. I saw Jerusalem, but the new one. I saw New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is the bride of Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament? It is the church of God. It is the assembly of the reborn ones, the firstborn ones, It is the totality of the people who belong to him. That group is the bride of Jesus Christ. And here John sees the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem that Hebrews has talked about. He sees it coming down from heaven, but Jerusalem is the bride of Jesus. The passage goes on. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The psalmist promised God will establish a Jerusalem that God's people can come and worship him uniquely in the assembly of God, the church of God, is that Jerusalem. It is that temple. When you sang our first worship song, did you listen to the words? I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. It's temple language, but it's talking about the church of God. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand. Why are we singing about walls if we're singing about the church of God? It is because the church of God is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is where God draws his people to be with him uniquely, Uh, it's the city, and cities have walls. And so we are singing about the beautiful walls of the city of Zion. What are the city's walls? They're not made of mortar and brick. The world can break through mortar and brick. The walls of the city of God 
are the holiness that God gives his people. It is the angels protecting them. It is the blood of Christ coating them, forever separating them from the world like no physical walls could ever do. The city of God has walls that cannot be breached. The psalmist says, go about the city and look at her walls, her palaces. Is he talking about ultimately dwelling places and rocks? He is talking about what they foreshadow. He is talking about what they are a type of. He is talking about the assembly of God drawn together as the city where God dwells in the person of his Holy Spirit. Look at the city, says the psalmist, and you will see the nature of God. God having drawn his children to Mount Zion, the beautiful city, the elevated city, the city that is blessed because it is his city where he meets with his people. In our current modern times, there are many Christians, using the term broadly, who will dispense with the church. They will say, I belong to God and Jesus Christ. Why should I be gathered into a church? What, what is the significance of that? Well, the significance is, is that what God is doing in Jesus Christ is he's gathering together his people into Mount Zion. There's a gathering process, and there yet remains a holy place, a unique place, where God is worshipped. He is to be worshipped in all places. He is to be praised in all places. But yet there remains a unique Zion where God gathers his people as the city of God. It is the church of God. He gathers his people into Zion. Now, we need a robust understanding of the church for that to make sense. And quite frankly, there is no more robust statement of what the church is than what you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I would like to tell you that the Congregationalist Savoy Declaration is better than the Westminster, but it's not. In fact, if anything, our confession really cuts some of the truth out of this statement, and I really wish that weren't the case. We're not as good as the statement. What is the Church of God? Well, this is what the Protestants of the Reformation said the church is. The Catholic or universal church, and that's what the word Catholic means, it means universal. The universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. But that's not the only way you find the church. That's an invisible church. Only God can see the invisible church, because the invisible church is the redeemed, is the entirety of the church that's assembling this morning. Is everybody there redeemed? In every Baptist church in this county, in every Methodist church in this county, in every holiness church, is everybody occupying a pew a redeemed person? Probably not. The second paragraph says, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, 
consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So the church of Jesus Christ, the city of Zion, has an invisible manifestation, an invisible manifestation. Uh, all the invisible, all those who are redeemed are in the visible church, but not everybody in the visible church is redeemed. That's an unfortunate fact, but it's true. You have people who become part of Mount Zion, who, who are part of the city, but they're not redeemed, and they're more like what Zephaniah was talking about. That will continue to the end, and it's just the way it is. But there is an invisible Zion, and it is inside the visible Zion. And our Protestant forebears say outside of the church, there's no ordinary means of salvation. Why would they say that? Well, it's not because you are saved by going to Zion. It's because what God is doing is he is gathering saved people into Zion. If you are a follower of Christ and say, I love the great king, but I despise his city. I love the great king, but he has made for me a place, a special place, where I can uniquely enjoy his presence, the city of God, and I don't want that. I don't want to have anything to do with the great king. He bids me to come, but I will not come into his presence this way, but I love the great king. How rational or sane does that sound? Can a loving heart who loves the great king, who has a city, and bids all to come to his presence in a unique way, though they can praise him everywhere, can a loving heart say to him, no, I don't think so. The Protestants aren't saying you're saved by the church. They're saying saved people are gathered by the spirit of Christ to Zion. He builds a city, a glorious city, out of redeemed people. It is glorious in elevation, the joy of all the earth, because here is God in a unique way. I love thy kingdom, Lord, because it is the house of thine abode. I can find you at home there. And I can be reconciled to you in Jesus Christ in a far more intimate way than ever happened at the temple. In, in our midweek Bible study, we've been looking at Leviticus and Numbers, and yes, you're able to fellowship with God through the temple to a degree, but there is still fearful fire if you get a detail wrong. There is still the most holy place that you cannot walk into. Only the great high priest can go in there. There is only a measure of reconciliation that happens on the slopes of the north. But in the true Zion that God has established forever in Christ, there is reconciliation so that John can say, the Lord now tabernacles with his people. He walks among them. Just like he did in the garden, there is now no separation in Zion. Thanks be to God.